The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. It's the Green Green Show right here on SAFM. I'm Nancy Richards here with you through until 10 o'clock together with Garnet and Quinica. And I hope you're going to be staying with us because we've got lots of interesting goodies lined up on the show tonight. Starting off with cleaning up for Mandela Day. Mandela Day tomorrow, as you know. Going to be chatting to Happy Kambule. He's a policy and research officer at Project 90 by 2030. He's going to give us an idea of how they got on with their river cleanup for Mandela Day. It happened today in the driving rain, I have to tell you, here in Cape Town. Then after that, Black Mamba, The Kiss of Death. Well, that's the title of one of the movies happening at the Durban International Film Festival starting today. Going to be talking to a creative director of Earth Touch about that movie. He's Graham Duan. Then after that, Long Feathered Dinosaurs. No, we haven't lost it. Going to be chatting to Professor Anusuya Chinsami Turan, who was part of an international team that has actually discovered the remains, or fossilisation, I suppose, of, uh, of the remains of a new predatory dinosaur. So it's not a new dinosaur exactly so much as an old dinosaur uh, just come to light all over again. So we'll find out all about that. And then in our forage feature, we're going to be talking about ostrich meat, talking about long-feathered creatures with Adrian Olufia, and he's with Klein Carew. And to close, we have a very interesting green goodie. Well, I think so anyway tonight. It's all about how a skateboard came to be made out of fishing net. So stay with us for all of that. And just quickly, whilst we're on the topic of uh, Madiba Day tomorrow, I wonder how you'll be doing your 67 minutes of time in honour of Madiba. Well, in his own words, he says... No country can develop unless its citizens are educated. But equally, no country can develop unless it has a healthy environment. And it's interesting to read that President Jacob Zuma, in his sonar, in his uh, State of the Nation address, encouraged all of us South Africans to dedicate our 67 minutes on Mandela Day to cleaning up the country and to beautifying every part. So whatever you choose to do tomorrow, maybe you could just consider cleaning up your own immediate environment because if each one of us does just a little, it surely can make a great big difference. So, and why not let us know? Pop us a, an email or send us a message on our Facebook page. It's uh, The Enviro Show on SAFM. And tell us what you did and how things have just been a little bit better in your personal environment. Let us know. But right now, stay tuned. All South Africans should dedicate at least 67 minutes on the 18th of July to clean South Africa, which is our theme for this year. Clean, clean everything. Fellow South Africans, this program of action is aimed at making South Africa a better place for all. SFM supports 20 years of democracy and Mandela Day. The Enviro Show. Well, how appropriate is that, celebrating 20 years of democracy and cleaning. And first up on the show today, we have someone who's actually spent the, the best part of the day doing exactly that. He's Happy Kumbale, and he's Policy and Research Officer at Project 90 by 2030, which incidentally is also celebrating its birthday, I think its seven-year birthday, as well as Mandela's birthday tomorrow, by cleaning up the Lisbeck River right here in Cape Town. We've got him on the line. Hi, Happy. Hi, Nancy. How are you? I'm excellent. And how are you? Because I thought uh, that you were cleaning up in the driving rain today. Yes, yes. <laughs> it was quite interesting to actually be cleaning while it was really pouring. Yeah. Well, how did you go about cleaning? I mean, the Leesbeck River is quite a long river. Did you choose a part of it? What was the, the plan? So we basically divided ourselves in four uh, teams. Some two two people started uh, well two groups started in the opposite side at nearest to the highway, and the other two um, 
started on the other side, uh, closest to Station Road. How do you go about cleaning up a river? Because I mean, if it's in full spate, there's not much you can do unless you've got waders, yeah. you know, nets. So what, what did you actually do? Um, well, we became a bit uh, ingenious with that. Uh, what we did do is we came up with um, pool poles, cleaning, you know, those poles that oh, clean yeah. the pools? <laughs> yeah, so that we can extend ourselves even further into the river. And we used a couple of those to get in deep <laughs> into the river. And we found some interesting items, I must say. Did you? What did you find? <laughs> I, I mean, um, I hardly we dare found ask. A few, we found a few cartons of um, milk. Okay. And a few questionable items, some condoms as well. Oh, okay. Talking yeah. questionable items, it's it's, <laughs> it, it's amazing what ends up in a river. It's not necessarily that people chuck it into the river. It's just that it might end up there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, one of the things which was kind of shocking is that we found a lot of champagne corks um, in the river. So that was kind of interesting to find so many of those in there. So it means that a lot of people have been celebrating, but somehow it got washed up in there. <laughs> The, I suppose the, the issue is, does it matter if there's stuff in the river? You know, people sort of imagine you throw it into the river, it's going to get washed out to the sea, and then it's all over. But the damage that all that sort of stuff can do, is it goes beyond that, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it, it goes far beyond. I mean, a lot of the animals, other than just being suffocated through eating the, the, the food, could also get trapped. Uh, well, when I say the food, I mean they eat the, the waste thinking that it's food. Um, some animals get trapped within the waste, especially the plastics when they're swimming through. Um, and also it contaminates the water that we drink as well. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a whole cycle of, of things that um, get impacted on by just us littering. You know, I must tell you, it was interesting. I actually did a river walk just the other day along uh, along the banks near the Vineyard Hotel, and they took us on a little guided walk down there. And the, and the Leesbeck River flows right past it. And I think the gentleman was telling us that at one time they stocked it with fish, but um, I can't remember what the fish were. But they actually destroyed the balance because they they uh, they wiped out all the indigenous fish. But as far as I know, there aren't any fish at all in the in the Leesbeck River because it's because it's quite polluted. Well, I, I don't know how many fish, or if there are fish, but um, mm. what I do know is if there are sea, well, I'm not sure if there were gulls, but there were specific birds that were there. I'm sure they're fishing for something. <laughs> um, they must be finding something there because there were quite a number of birds in the area uh, and on the water itself. Maybe, maybe they were having a peck at the champagne corks. Yeah, <laughs> most probably. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. well done for doing that, because I know the weather was absolutely filthy down here, so well done for even trying it. But I think that you did it not just from Mendiba Day coming up tomorrow, but also because it's Project 90 by 2030's birthday. Yes, yes. Um, also, the mere fact that um, other than it is Mandela Day, the, you had a little run of uh, Jacob Zuma's uh, the president said that we should clean. So mm. we thought, well, it would be quite uh, amazing if we clean for our birthday, for Mandela Day, and because the state of the nation said we should clean. And it was quite epic to actually continue and go on with it, even while it was raining. Most of the people looked at us like we were crazy, but I think as, as they drove away or when they were walking away, they thought, hey, maybe it's for Mandela Day. Indeed. Well, you're absolutely right. But I mean, it's quite a thing to be celebrating your birthday by cleaning up. But that's really what you do. I mean, you you know, uh, Project 90 by 2030, it's a, it's a, a favourite on this show because we you do a lot of good work. But in a nutshell, just for those who don't know about what you do, what are you? We are a change-focused organisation. Um, our roots are in environmental 
um, considerations, but largely we've got five key programs, which is the operations of the Project 90 team. We've got youth programs called the U Lead Collective and the clubs program. The clubs program looks at high school learners and giving awareness to high school learners and primary school learners about climate change and environmentalism, as well as we've got the U Lead Collective, which looks at post high school learners. So we're talking about treasury and people who are youth who are in the working environment. How can they continue their involvement in the climate change space and in with the environmental consciousness? Um, we've got the policy and research uh, program which I'm working in, which looks at climate change, energy policy as well, looking at how the social economic considerations of the country are actually tackling and looking at the pro-poor uh, aspect of our policies. And we've got the community partnership program, which basically looks at all the stuff and all the alternatives that we talk about when we say renewable energy at a decentralized level, um, implementing it in the local spaces, especially in rural areas where it's needed most. Just in terms of policy, and you were mentioning President Jacob Zuma's speech there at the State of the Nation, to what what sort of influence does an organization like yours have on the larger policies of the country? Well, that's always a very hard thing to, to gauge because mm. um, a lot of organizations do a lot of work and I think organizations can't necessarily say that this is what we did. But what we can say civil societies when we see systemic changes such as the inclusion of renewable energy, we can say this is uh, civil society uh, action that has been taken up. Or when we look at the price increases, the tariff increases from ESCOM last year, MYPD3, um, that it wasn't as hard-hitting on the poor, or rather it wasn't as high as ESCOM wanted. It was a civil society initiative to get it to be 8% as opposed to be 16%. So we rather look at it as a collective um, action and an effort that we contribute to the collective effort of civil society. Yeah, and I guess you track things, and I think for a lot of us, we just sort of go with the flow and just hope that the right decisions are being made. But because you guys make it your business to know what's going on, you are in a position to sort of influence things as best you possibly can. And I think one of the things that you have up your sleeve is is a bit of a wish list for the next COP, the next United Nations Conference of the Parties. Yeah. What What's on that wish list? Oh, it's a very long wish list, but top of my head right now, we... We want a negotiating text. We want something that we can bring back home and say, hey, our leaders at an international level have agreed to cutting our carbon um, greenhouse gases and are working towards limiting the temperature increase to 2 degrees or 1.5 degrees. That's something that we really want. What we also want is for the international community to basically sit down and say adaptation must be at the heart of whatever agreement we have. We know we have to mitigate. We know we have to stop polluting. But how are we going to be resilient against all these weather extremes? I mean, floods are becoming worse. Droughts in certain areas of the world are worse. Uh, so things are happening due to climate shifts already. Yeah. And I think that uh, over and above having visions and dreams and goals that, that you want to see implemented, I think you've got some quite uh, practical solutions. Have you, is there, I know that what you do there at the Hutkada Trust, um, you've got a lot of practical innovations going on, but lots of ideas on your website? Yes, of course. I mean, people can look at our website. We've got what you can do at home. We know what you can do in your office. And we can even tell, we can even give you ideas about what you can do while you're driving or walking on the street. It's It's all the little behavioral changes that we can take to make this 
the world we want to see. And um, I think one of the best things that we can think of is basically our energy consumption. Can we really think of how, how much less energy can be used? Well, I guess if one spent at least one of the 67 minutes on Mandela tomorrow thinking about how you can reduce your carbon footprint and your energy consumption, that would be no bad thing. Happy, I'm going to give out the uh, your website, which is www90 by 2030 and that's all numbers with an X in between, 90by2030.org.za. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Excellent. Well, you go and dry off and have yourself <laughs> a nice hot cup of something. All right, thank Lovely. you very much. Thanks a lot. Take care. Happy Kambule, the Policy and Research Officer, Project 90 by 2030. Do check the site. It really is full of all sorts of exciting things and and practical stuff. Uh, 90by2030.org.za. We're next up moving to Durban from uh, Soggy Cape Town, moving to Durban, where the Durban International Film Festival gets underway. I think it started today, in fact. And amongst the lineup of movies is one called Black Mamba Kiss of Death. Well, the Black Mamba is said to be the deadliest snake on the planet. To tell us a little bit more about the movie and what it's all about, we have on the line creative director of Earth Touch, who is uh, responsible for the film, Graham Duane. Is that how you pronounce your name, Graham? Uh, Duane, Nancy. Duane, Duane. Yeah. With an S at the end or singular? No, just singular. Singular, Duane. Yep. Okay, Graham. so tell us a little bit about Black Mamba. Have you ever seen a Black Mamba live in the flesh? I mean, did you get to uh, come across one as you were making your movie? Yeah, plenty of them. You know, we we wanted to make a, a film that told the story of the snake because it had never really been done before. Mm. Um, and being in KZN on the coast in summer, we get far more of these snakes than people think. Um, and a lot of them get caught from people's houses by guys that offer their services as snake removal experts. So we worked with these guys. Um, so we got plenty of snakes. I mean, the one day I think they caught six in the Tongat area. So, you know, we were releasing them into this um, kind of restricted habitat, which mm-hmm. we, we wrote into the story of the film. So we got plenty of, of contact with the animals, yeah. Is there a, a story? Or, I mean, is it sort of documentary style, or is there actually a story that runs yeah, through it's the movie? Yeah, it's very story-driven. Um, we wanted to really get as close to the character of the snake as possible, because that's what people know so little about. Um, you know, they know about the fear and they know about what it can do in, in, in a bad way. But in the, in the film, we actually engage with a, a particular female snake called Mercury, um, and we follow her through a breeding season and what she has to go through, her courting, her mating, her, her egg laying, and the hatching of her babies, and... Um, and all of this is in the film. That yeah. actual behaviour ends up in the film. Wow! It sounds like you, your sympathies have moved very much towards Mercury. It's yeah. it's interesting that you talk about the character of the snake. I guess you are absolutely right. A bit like sharks, everybody goes, "Whoa!" You know, black mambas. And I've just quoted the line that they're said to be the deadliest on the planet. Mm. But they're only doing what snakes do. So what do they do? Tell us a little bit about Mercury's um, day in well, the life of. I mean, they do what mambas do, and in a way, it's why they've got such a bad, a, a bad rap. Mm. They, they're unbelievably observant snakes, so they're, they're really alert. They've got very good senses. They're very agile, but the, the downside of it is they, they're quite highly strung, and they're very nervous. So, you know, giving a mamba a fright is a, is a, you know, can end up in a bad situation for a person, particularly yeah. if they're caught in a house. So, you know, what we found was, 
a really amazing um, animal that's um, you know adapted so incredibly well to to survive and and in a lot of ways it's it's winning an arms race that that it fights with cobras and wormslungs and and all sorts of other venomous snakes that we get here and it's really you know cornered the market as such um, in terms of survival but they have quite a tough time with with human impact um, and you know the expansion of of towns and villages yeah. into their habitat like like any other animal yeah uh, you know it's about to say what is their biggest predator and I, but i suppose it is human beings yeah i mean predatory birds um are a big one um but i, I think you know it was it, it would be very unusual for for somebody to actually phone the, the the snake removal guys to come and collect the snake live normally people just kill them so we 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 actually in the end we actually offered a reward um for for people to you'd phone us without you know trying to hurt the snake and a, a lot of the times you'd get there and they've, they've chopped it with a spade or or um, you know burnt it or whatever the case yeah. may be. Shame me. I mean, it, you know, it, you have to sort of think to yourself. I suppose it's a matter of who, who's going to survive this uh, this confrontation, you or the snake. What mm. sort of conditions do they like? I mean, in what areas are they mainly found, and are they areas where people are starting to build and develop? Yeah. Look, what 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 seems to happen is that around October time, when you know we get quite heavy rains in KZN, and when that rain stops and it warms up, the females start looking for nesting sites. And that means, um, you know, they'd, they'd normally seek out a hollow tree or an, uh, an anthill. Um, but, you know, if they're on the fringe of a built-up area, that means underneath people's houses, in kitchens, behind fridges. And that's, that's the time of year when, when the phones w- went crazy, um, when, when, when these females are egg-bound and they're looking for places to nest. The other time is when they want to hibernate and they're looking for somewhere warm and some shelter. And that's obviously at the end of summer. But... Um, there are far more of these things around than people think, and you've got to give them credit because they're watching people all the time and they're yeah. not doing anything. We don't know this. Yeah, yeah, they're watching out for people rather than Correct. watch it. You know, they're not out to get you necessarily. Yeah. How yeah. long is their hibernation period and from when till when? It's, it's tough to say because, you know, when it warms up in winter, we've seen them get quite active and, and actually, um, you know, display mating behaviour. I think on, on this coast, it depends on the temperature, but they, and, and I don't think they kind of hibernate as such. I think they, they just kind of slow down and just bunker down, especially in the cold period. And then they'll move, you know, when it gets a bit warmer. Yeah. Do they, I mean, I don't know, don't know how much you know here, but once the eggs have all hatched, do they, are they, they've been very independent? Do all the little ones slither off and do their own thing, or do they yeah, hang around totally. the mother? Totally independent. Mm. It's actually amazing. They come out of the egg about 40, 50 centimeters long, um, and they're ready to go. They're aggressive. They're alert. They're, their venom their venom supply is uh, is active, yeah. and they and they they slither off and they're immediately orientating themselves towards hunting. Yeah. God knew what he was doing when he invented uh, black mambas, didn't he? Yeah. There also, there's something called a, a black mamba sanctum. Isn't that hmm. a security facility for mambas? Yes. So what? So what we did in the story, um, you know, Mercury gets caught in a in somebody's house, and she's released into this kind of protected area. So we built a massive enclosure, you know, probably the size of of two tennis courts, and we released a lot of the captured snakes 
into this. I mean, it's 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 kind of like a second chance for them. And we, you know, originally we were wanting to film behavior, and and I had a problem with not writing this whole thing into the film because they were essentially still captive, but they were free to roam within this what we call the sanctum. You know, there was a there was a pond, and there were trees, and there were anthills, and and um, you know, long grass and. They 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 basked in the in the top of the trees and they they could they could function totally naturally and that we wrote into the story. Um, so this is kind of a true. I'm getting the picture that this is Mercury is sort of like the Angelina Jolie. I mean, is it a is it the story of of this one snake? Yeah, it's it's the story of her her challenges throughout a single season of a year. But it's kind of like Big Brother, mm. you, you know, because they're in the sanctum and there's males competing for her attention. Um, there's predation going on, um, you know, there's mambas chasing birds because they eat birds a lot, and there's there's her interactions with different animals and males and then obviously her behaviour. I have to ask you this, and you can choose whether or not you want to answer it, but apparently mm. a mamba's bite is a, a, is a 100% fatality rate if left untreated. Was any Did any, anybody get harmed during the shooting of this movie? Um... Yeah, we, we actually had quite a, I mean, funny in retrospect, but we had a, a cameraman up a scaffolding in the tree filming the mambas. And at that stage, there were seven or eight mambas in the in this sanctum. And um, he got swarmed by uh, a, a swarm of bees. He got attacked by a swarm of bees, and he was getting stung terribly, but he couldn't jump off because he was more afraid of the mambas than of the bees. So he, he took a few hits <laughs> up, the, up the scaffolding. Um, but... You know, ultimately, someone was bitten um, towards the end of the production. When we were releasing the mambas, someone was bitten through the bag when they bagged the mambas. Um, but fortunately, it, it obviously wasn't a heavy envenomation. He did end up in hospital, but um, he was released a few days later, fortunately. Sure. I'd live to tell the tale and yeah. go to the premiere of the movie. Graham, yeah. when, is it, when is it being screened at the Durban International Film Festival? Um, it's it's being screened next week. Um, I think it's Wednesday or Thursday. If you look at DurbanFilmFest.coza, you'll have the whole um, whole lineup. Yeah, the whole lineup. Um, and obviously, there's you know Wild Talk Africa has been intruded in there now, so we get a chance to show some really nice um, wildlife films from mm. from Wild Talks Festival, which is great. Um, and um, yeah, it's coming together really nicely. The, the festival's grown a lot. Being in Durban, we we pop down every year, and it's yeah. really exploded, which is which is great. Absolutely, and it's raising the awareness of things like Mercury, the Black Mamba. It sounds yeah. wonderful. Um, no doubt we'll speak again, um, Graham. It sounds like you've got all sorts of information up your sleeve about snakes, and I'm sure a whole lot more besides. Lovely. Thank you so much. Take care and stay out of the wake of uh, out of the way of snakes. Thank Thanks, you. Alrighty. Cheers. Graham Dwayne there. Well, if you'd like to see that movie, it's called Black Mamba, Kiss of Death, but it is one of a whole lineup of films, uh, as you heard there. So if you want to check out the whole programme, it's durbanfilmfest.co.za, durbanfilmfest.co.za, and you might just keep out of the way of mambas, but perhaps give them a little bit more respect, which is possibly what they've not had quite enough of. Well, it's a bit of a stretch, I guess, from black mambas to dinosaurs, but they are, after all, all God's creatures, or were God's creatures in this case. But recently discovered, apparently, by a team of international paleontologists is the Changi Yoraptor, I think that's how you say it. 
Anyway, it's a, it's a long feathered winged dinosaur thought to be around 125 million years old. Well, Professor, uh, part of the team was Professor Anusuya Chinsami Turan, who we have on the line. Hi, Anusuya. Hello, hello. Can you hear me? Hello, can you hear me? Okay, no, we haven't got her. We, well, we have got her, but we haven't quite got her through yet. But uh, let me tell you about the professor. She, she's actually, um, she's fondly known as Mrs. Dinosaur because she is actually the professor and authority on dinosaurs. In fact, not so long ago, I think she won uh, ShopRite Checkers Woman of the Year as a result of all her work, encouraging young people to know a little bit more about dinosaurs and all the things that go with them. So we're going to, she's going to be telling us a little bit about this 125 year, uh, 125 million year old creature and the findings that are going to be published in Nature Communications, um, in fact have just been published in Nature Communications, show that the weight of four kilograms of this creature, it's 122 centimetres long and it was the biggest of all four winged dinosaurs, four kilograms, hmm, it's not huge. 122 centimetres long, that's pretty big, that's big enough. I'm measuring him with my with my hands here. And Yusuya, have we got you? Yes, hi. Oh, hi, hi. <laughs> Sorry I, about that, no, I'm that's not sure okay. what actually happened there. No worries, I'm just busy stretching my, my wingspan here to try and imagine how long this this dinosaur is. But tell us firstly, how was he, dis he she, how, would, how was he discovered? Well, this particular site in uh, northeastern China is uh, very famous for these uh, feathered dinosaurs. And uh, so there are regularly people that work on the site. And so a team of researchers from Bohai University were involved in the discovery. So they found this wonderful specimen, and then they asked uh, my colleagues and I to study it further. Okay. And had you, had you, did you fly over there especially? Um, not for this particular dinosaur, okay. but I've been um, several times to China and I've done other work on Chinese dinosaurs. But this one, the material was sent to me. Um, you know, we always sort of fondly think that we've got a bit of a monopoly on, on dinosaurs, you know, with uh, all those uh, fossils and things that have been found in the Karoo. Uh, different dinosaurs, different parts of the world? Yes, absolutely. In South Africa, we are really um, well known for early dinosaurs. That is just the beginning of the radiation of dinosaurs. In um, North America, they have many Jurassic and Cretaceous age dinosaurs. And in China, of course, they have many different exposures where dinosaurs are found. And this particular locality is about 125 to about 130 million years old. So nice. they have Cretaceous dinosaurs. So depending on an, a particular area, you could have different um, rocks, and within those rocks, you have different kinds of dinosaurs. You know, I was just telling you there that I'm trying to sort of get a, a picture of how big they are, but the other thing that's a little bit mystifying is that they had not two, but four wings. Yes, that, that is what's astounding about this particular group of dinosaurs. So, you know, often people think about dinosaurs and they think big, enormous, huge animals. But among the dinosaurs, there were also many small dinosaurs. And particularly among these very advanced dinosaurs, there was this particular group, only known by a very few specimens. There are just about six of them that are known, which have wings on their forelimbs and wings on their hind limbs. So really very, very unusual creatures. Um, I'm wondering what, what we are to learn from this. Are we to learn that 
our creatures, we're going to be talking about ostriches in a minute, are we to learn perhaps that our creatures have not evolved in such a successful way? Would it have been very successful to have four wings? Well, it obviously must have been successful because they they diversified and it seemed that they were able to to live successfully at the time that they were living. You know, many dinosaurs went extinct, so... It, and, and of course, only birds survived. So birds and dinosaurs were around at the same time, but birds somehow survived. And we think it's possibly more to do with the physiology of birds that allowed them to survive. But the group that we have now, these micro-raptorine dinosaurs with the four wings, they seem to have been very successful. And the way we've reasoned it is that having a very long tail and having these four wings on such a large animal would actually have allowed it to overcome gravity and allow it to be airborne. So, you know, having these adaptations would have made it or enabled it to actually be able to um, to keep up in the air. Is there anything that has descended from this creature or did they all get wiped out and a whole new, I mean, I suppose we're talking sort of evolution here, but, uh, you know, is there anything that can be related back um, well, what we do know is that this particular group of dinosaurs and birds had a common ancestry further down, but they are a side branch. So one branch developed these four wings, and the other branch developed into birds with two wings. Gosh. And the predatory, what, would, what were they predating on? Everything. (laughs) They basically are raptors, so like Velociraptor, which everybody knows from Jurassic Park. These were definitely uh, predatory dinosaurs, and we can see very distinctive teeth in their jaws. They have the typical um, predatory teeth, which is a recurved dentition, and they were certainly vicious. So we know that they belong to the meat-eating dinosaurs, and they were probably very fast, very swift, and we think that they at well, we don't think we know that they at meat. And the question is just what meat did they eat? Um, it's quite um, possible that they also, um, you know, were able to catch catch other animals that were also fast. So they might have also been able to catch um, small dinosaurs, small birds, and um, their prey items could have been quite varied. Hmm. What do we do with this information now? Well, the, what we are trying to understand now is we, we know we have this phenomenal creature. It's exciting find. But what we are trying to, go, to understand further is aspects about its biology. So how did the wings actually function? So, you know, if you look at a modern bird today, the forelimbs are structured in a particular way. The way in which the bird actually moves tells us about the kind of flight this animal would have had. But in the case of our dinosaur, we have an animal with hind limbs that also were wings. And the question now for us is to study this animal's anatomy and try and understand how did these wings actually function? What are the biomechanical aspects of the skeleton that allows it or allowed it to move in the air? We know that having a long tail, so you know, if you look at modern birds today, they don't have a long bony tail. They all their tail vertebra um, form one single bone called a pygostyle. In our dinosaur, there's several individual vertebra that make up the tail. And so it had this long bony tail and feathers attached to this long bony tail. So the way it actually worked 
is something that we're still trying to understand. Is you know we we, we speculate that it uh, it possibly was able to use the tail feathers to allow it to um, to have better maneuverability and agility in the air, but we still want to understand more about the the kinds of movement that it would have enabled. Is the world not truly a wondrous place? <laughs> Professor, thank you so much. Fascinating, as always. Thank you for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Professor Anusuya Chinsami Turan, she's uh, with the University of Cape Town, telling us all about the, I, I think I, this is how you say it, Changi Raptor, anyway, uh, the long feathered winged dinosaur thought to be about 125 million years old. Well, I really don't know if an ostrich qualifies as long-feathered or not. I, I don't have any idea on that. And I certainly don't know how old they are as a species. But what we're looking at tonight in our forage feature, we thought, seeing as Tim Noakes has been urging us all to eat more meat and meat products, we thought that it would be worth exploring what sort of meat is good to eat, what is best to eat. So we thought we'd take a, a look at the ostrich. And on the line to tell us a little bit more is Adrian Olifia. He's with Clane Carew, and we have him on the line to tell us more. Hi, Adrian. Hi, good evening. Are you well? I'm well. I'm very well, thank you. I don't yes. know if you were able to listen to our professor earlier talking about these winged dinosaur. And yes. I was wondering, are the ostriches, are they a very old species? Yeah, the ostriches are quite old and very uh, similar to dinosaurs. And I think a lot of the dinosaur programs that you see is that they use ostriches to mimic the movement of uh, dinosaurs. But yeah, they're quite prehistoric and they're not as domesticated as we think. So they're quite, mm. quite wild still. Mm. And the thing about ostriches is that they really are one of a kind, aren't they? They're those funny knees that go the wrong way. They, they're just unlike any other bird. Yes, that's true. And um, the knees are actually their hocks um, and they don't have any breast muscle like the, the breast that you would get from your chickens or your ducks or, or, or turkeys. And all their meat is on their thighs and on their legs. Um, and that's why they're also good athletes, of course. Okay, so all the, all the ostrich meat we get is from those great big fat thighs, but nothing at all from the body? No, no, that's right. Okay. I've always been led to believe, because like everybody else, I've been to the, one of those oats on farms where, where you come from, um, that there's nothing about an ostrich is wasted. And uh, just earlier, we were, I was talking about Tim Noakes, who's been urging everybody to eat as much meat and meat uh, offal and all the meat products. Is it true? Yeah. Do, do you use every last bit of an ostrich for food? Yes, yes. I think um, the ostrich industry um, actually displays it, our, the uniqueness of the bird and all the challenges that it's gone through, from the feather boom and bust, um, right through now to the feathers and uh, leather and the uh, meat market. Um, as you might know, is that South Africa produces around about 80% of the world's um, ostriches, and the Tanku area and surrounding Southern Cape, Eastern Cape, and Northern Cape produces about uh, 70% of that. So we are really the industry leaders um, in uh, red meat, uh, very healthy red meat um, that's produced, and it's very low in fat, of course, and um, a very healthy uh, red meat that can be used. Healthy and quite sustainable, I think. Um, I, certainly they're not battery farmed. I mean, you couldn't keep a whole bunch of ostriches yeah. all together. So they're free, all, all ostrich meat would be free range? Yeah, I think that's one of the fortunate things that they don't like living indoors and we, we haven't been able to do that, so we keep them outdoors. Um, just for interest, the, the industry has actually um, um, looked at this, these sustainability factors and Tancru and International as being one of the leader, leading producers with the South African Ostrich Business Chamber, has identified five key um, aspects of sustainability. And, and one of those, um, starting off with one of those, is that the um, producers, your producers of ostriches, they are the 
main um, key in the chain of production. And if you can create prosperity for them, then you will be sustainable in the long run because they will keep the business afloat. Um, the other thing that we really um, look at is farming in a sustainable manner because um, as these ostriches are birds from the semi-arid and arid regions, we all know that rain is very scarce here and um, you know you can't waste your resources and these resources are very finite. And it's also a very unique environment, the Clan Kruya, Bahome and, and surrounding areas. So the farmers really um, have a biodiversity unit to protect the, the surrounding um, natural vegetation and felt. So we manage that with the requirements for production and keeping the um, birds outdoors and living outdoors, um, but also then um, having to feed them a bit. Um, otherwise, it will damage the felt or the natural vegetation too much. How much... Uh, what sort of area of land does one ostrich need? Well, because they are so big, I think if you drive along the N2 along the southern coast um, of, of uh, the Cape provinces, you'll see that they, you know it's quite large areas that they, that they um, are, are farmed in. And they walk a lot, of course. Um, they spend about 60% of their time walking and looking around and, and feeding. Um, so they have large, large spaces to walk. Um, they're not like any broilers or um, you know, intensive farming productions where you have uh, thousands of animals in a small, uh, less than one hectare or, or a small um, house that you keep them. So it's difficult to say the younger chicks are keeping smaller areas, of course, because you need to protect them against the environment. And as they grow older, they are moved out into larger and larger areas um, where they can ex- display their normal behavior. One of the welfare um, um, aspects that we do um, look at as, as responsible farmers is that they um, have to comply to the five freedoms and, and, and displaying normal behaviour is one of those. Hmm. One of the other things that you mentioned and one of the, the, your basic pillars of sustainability, which I think is obviously a very good uh, a, a good thing, tick box, that ostriches don't receive any growth stimulants or any, um, or any artificial chemicals that some other... Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, domestic animals would get. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of our um, key um, features of the product making it so healthy is that um, the farmers um, they um, subscribe to a code of practice, and one of this is that they're not, um, they don't want to use any growth stimulants or hormones, um, and then they're also very uh, diligent about any products that are used on the animals. Um, and to monitor that, we have a whole uh, residue monitoring program with the uh, national government. And the farms are test on farm, and then also the meat. All the meat that um, is used is test on this um, uh, residue program to make sure that there's no residues, heavy metals, um, growth stimulants, antibiotics, mm-hmm. or anything like that in, in the meat that is produced to the customer. And of course, the customers are very important to us um, as they buy our products, and um, uh, they they're the final takeoff of the, the producers. Um, um, Produce. Just to, we're a bit out of time, but just very quickly, how much ostrich meat do we eat here in South Africa? And it's, it's well known that, you know, there have been challenges, there have been uh, ostrich viruses, etc. Is the meat, ostrich meat that's being produced now, is it clean, virus-free? And how much do we, on average, eat in South Africa? I think we still eat too, too few, <laughs> too few kilograms of meat because it's so healthy. But yeah, we do eat uh, quite a significant amount, especially in the Western Cape and then also in the Gauteng area. Um, the meat, I can categorically say, is safe because all the birds are tested before they are slaughtered. So we know that we are only providing uh, fresh, safe and wholesome meat onto the market. 
Um, I can't give you the exact numbers of the, the kilograms of meat eaten, but it's quite significant um, uh, within the, um, the local market. And then we're also exporting grilled meat for the export market. And um, the grilled meat is also very special in the sense that um, it reduces or um, uh, addresses the risk of um, some uh, food safety concerns that the EU or the international community might, might have. So we, we are exporting um, grilled meat to the international market and on the local market it's fresh meat or, or grilled meat and what the customer would like to have. Adrian Ordefia, thank you very much. As I say, out of time, sadly, but it certainly sounds like we can, can give the ostrich meat a thumbs up from many different reasons. Thank you very much. Take care. Sure. Cheers. Adrian Ordefia, he's with Clean Carew and if you'd like to... Uh, Find yourself a nice piece of meat. Well, you could, it seems like you couldn't do worse than get yourself a piece of ostrich, which I believe is very delicious. Well, finally, here on the Enviro Show tonight, our green goodie. Well, it's a really unusual combination of old fishing nets and brand new skateboards. We came across uh, American David Stover. He's a co-founder of an organisation called Boreo, and he's made the connection. And I asked him first what Boreo actually means. The name was chosen uh, in honor of, of the country of Chile, where we were given the opportunity to start our project. Uh, it's a local word from the um, the Mapudungan people of Chile. It's from the Mapuche language, uh, and what it means is the waves uh, in native Chilean. And, and really, we chose it because our idea was that we were starting this project with kind of a small disturbance in this issue of, of plastic pollution in the ocean. Uh, similar to a wave starting from a small disturbance of wind, we're hoping that through time and energy we can have a greater impact on this problem and, and, and try to try to do our part in solving the issues. And what is your part? What is it that you plan to do to prevent the plastic pollution in the ocean? Yeah, I mean, I think right now it, it's very small, to be honest. You know, you know, in the first year we kind of have set up programs to work with the fishermen in Chile and, and um, you know, Make sure that their their fishnet waste is handled um, correctly and managed uh, appropriately. Uh, and in the first year, it was just in three communities there. And um, basically, the ideal is to give them an outlet um, because it's a very difficult material for them to manage with limited resources um, and, a, and a high volume of, of harmful waste each year. Um, you know, we've set up a program so that we can collect the material from them and ensure that it, it's, it is managed appropriately. And then we upcycle the material into plastic cruiser skateboards. Sounds like an absolutely cool move to me. But tell us a little bit about fishnet waste. I mean, unless you are involved in the fishing industry, you wouldn't really have an idea. Fishnets are made out of what? And do they have such a short lifespan? Just give us the fishnet story. Sure. I mean, in the beginning, we actually, you know, we started the project. Um, looking at plastic pollution in the ocean. It was something as kind of global citizens, our team, which is made up of, um, of my three, had kind of lived all over the world, um, in Africa, in Australia, in New Zealand, Southeast Asia, uh, and the United States uh, before moving to South America. And one thing that we had found kind of everywhere as, as surfers and ocean lovers was this problem of plastic in the ocean. Uh, and, you know, looking into it, we decided to set up a recycling program. Um, and Chile really gave us that opportunity through, through a government program there. And researching the types of plastics in the ocean, we kind of were narrowing down, okay, well, let's, let's see what we can do. Where can we start? And what are the major issues in the ocean? And fishing that 
was a glaring problem to us. Um, it's, it makes up more than 10% of the plastic pollution in the ocean, and the nets themselves are actually made from very durable plastic material. The nets we're working with are made from nylon. Um, other nets are made from polypropylene and polyethylene. So these nets are made from highly durable and long-lasting materials that once they get into the ocean, um, they can wreak havoc on, on the ocean system. Not only you know do you have to worry about marine mammals who get entangled in the nets, yeah. But the nets oftentimes um, strangulate the the coral reef systems, and um, you know can rip apart the biodiversity down there. Uh, in addition, you know once the nets break down, you have the same sort of problems with microplastics. Um, and, and you know it was just something that stood out to us as okay, this is an abundant material that that's being um, put into the ocean. Um, you know, and, and the research that we were doing. You know, we thought we had an idea of the, of the scope of it as far as, you know, there's there's a lot of estimates um, to the amount of plastic that's put into the ocean every year um, and often disputed. You know, some people say, I think there's some studies to say up to 30 million tons of plastic a year and, and potentially that their, like, fishing gear was up to 10% of that. Um, you know, and then you speak to other experts who say, well, it could be actually much higher than that. It's a very hard to manage and calculate. and. You know, just working in the the few communities that we're working in in Chile and kind of getting to know the industry there, which is just one country with a vast coastline, you get to see um, the the volume of this material. I mean, the fishermen are doing their best to manage it, but, you know, oftentimes some of these boats go through tons and tons of nets each year themselves. And, you know, not not to say that all those nets are winding up in the ocean, but, but a percentage of them unfortunately do. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was the scale of the problem, you know, kind of opened up our eyes even more once we started working in the in the industry. Yeah, that's a fairly hectic uh, statistic, isn't it? Three hundred million tons of plastic gets dumped in the ocean every year. Um, yeah, thirty. Sorry, thirty is is that statistic? Oh, thirty million. Thirty million. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's even at thirty million, it's too much. If this fishing net is so durable, what's it doing in the sea? Is it is it carelessness? Is it does it get dumped when they're not using it anymore? Does it get broken so they don't use it, or is it just um, an occupational hazard that they're going to lose X amount of fishing net? Yeah, it, honestly, it's a com- we found that it's a combination of all three. And again, our sample size is is probably pretty small. We have done some, you know, informal surveys. Um, in our home states in the U.S. as well as abroad in South America. Um, but it really is a combination. Um, as I said, it's, it's often difficult for these fishermen to manage it. So you, you definitely have um, issues with the nets being caught up in the reefs and the rocks, and um, there being issues with, with the nets being lost at sea. Um, you have issues where, you know, the nets are really expensive for the fishermen to dispose of. Um, which leads them to sometimes mismanage them, um, and that's either at sea or at port or on a beach or burnt. Um, and then you know you also have have problems where you know some some of the fishermen, you know, in regions of the world, um, where you know when they're out at sea and and they're and they have considerations of of trying to deal with with certain nets that sometimes they can be illegally dumped. Um, yeah. You know, and we've we've found that in talking to the fishermen, you know, that's not their intentions, and it's certainly not um, the priority of how to manage um, a net that's no longer used for them. But they all can can speak of cases where they know that some people have done that, um, 
And if you take that into consideration for the for the thousands of fisheries around the world, um, you can see that it, it is something to consider, and it, it is a problem. When you talk about the fishermen, one thinks, oh, poor struggling fisherman who lives by the coast and everything is so difficult. But then, of course, there's the fishing industry who are perhaps less ethical, maybe more ethical, um, who knows. But, you know, not every fisherman is is part of a very small one-man business. You know, where there's also the, the much larger fishing industry. Are you working with them as well? Yeah, I mean, it, we're not on the on the global scale right now, um, but in Chile, yes, we have um, been speaking with the the commercial fisheries as well, um, and actually, we, we've had a couple sign on to the program there, um, which we think is important. You know, I think I think it's important to to work with with all levels of the fisheries, and and certainly, um, you know, the fishing industry is very complex, and there's many um, there's many issues between the way that the commercial fisheries are kind of viewed um, by the more artisanal and by smaller fishermen. And certainly we're sympathetic to that and, and we don't side with either. Our, our kind of view is that, look, this is a waste um, that's a problem at the global scale and we're trying to do our part. Um, and so we, we certainly offer that program to, to all levels of okay. fisheries. So you're not judging people or sort of, uh, you know, holding them to account so much as, you know, making a plan here. So to explain how the program works. You, uh, you f- first receive the, the net and then do what with it? Yeah, so in, in the first year, we, we say that we've gone through our proof of concept phase um, where we've, we've worked in, a, in three communities in Chile. Uh, and the way that it was set up was that we collect the nets uh, port side um, with assistance from the fishing communities there. Uh, and the nets are actually transported. Um, we're using deadhead trucks, which is basically trucks that would normally be driving a transport route empty. So we're trying to utilize excess capacity on the trucks uh, and we're working with a uh, contracted um, recycler and manufacturer in Santiago. So everything's done within the country of Chile. Uh, and the nets are, are basically the, the process. We actually have um, a little video online that I, that I can share after. But the process is basically the nets are received at the facility. Um, they're cleaned and then they're shredded kind of like a big set of multiple scissors that cuts them up. And then they're um they're pelletized, so the nets are actually melted down um, back into kind of a, um, a plastic paste. And then this is kind of extruded into a string that's cut into little pellets. So you actually wind up with a form that looks similar to kind of what what a plastic manufacturer would make. But obviously it's a, it's a recycled plastic where you have little, little – the net turns into little hard, um, very hard, dense plastic pellets. And then those plastic pellets are injected through um, through a large press into a mold that's in the shape of our skateboard that we designed. Um, and so that all happens in one facility uh, in Santiago, Chile. Wow, it's absolutely brilliant. Well explained. <laughs> I could picture it along every every step of the way. I'm not sure how many skateboards you're able to produce or what the demand for skateboards is. But before we get onto that, could you not be making molds for all sorts of other things? Or have you just got the the skateboard story is what you want to do? Sure. No, I mean, that that's our vision. Like for us, um, you know, we're a startup in the, in the U.S. So we, we kind of started with limited funding and we have gotten some great traction in the last year. And the molds, um, especially when you're when you're speaking of something the size of a skateboard, 
Um, the molds obviously um, are, the, are one of the most capital-intensive assets used um, in the process because it's it's a large steel uh, mold that, that needs to be able to maintain kind of high heat and pressure to, to make the board. But certainly plastic is in a lot of applications. And well, from what we've seen, the, the supply of, of fishnet waste is, is pretty high. Um, and, and certainly you can make other things. I should note that you know, there are a couple of other notable programs that are, that are making products. There's, um, you know, a large, very large um, corporate in Europe uh, known as Interface Carpets that has actually been spinning, working with a company called Aquafill and spinning um, fishnets into, into carpets, which is also um, kind of wasn't an early on inspiration to us um, when we were kind of doing our research and seeing that and said, hey, you know, someone else is doing this and they're making a product that, that people love. And our idea and twist was, you know, we're going to try to take this and make um, something exciting, um, you know, and something to really tell the story. And we started with a skateboard and certainly we have other ideas and, and we're hoping to, to continue the product development and, and put this kind of waste um, into other products that kind of bring excitement and awareness to these issues. So are they branded Boreo, and are they? how many are you able to produce? Yeah, so they, they are branded Boreo, and, and we're a little different than, than, most, um, than most manufacturing operations in that in the first year, we set out to collect um, a couple tons of fishnets through these programs, and we collected um, a little over three tons um, over a six-month period. And so um, we're actually running our, our first major production run right now. It started last week, so... Um, we're trying to make, we're trying to utilize all the materials down there um, in the first year, and then the, the idea is to is to sell through our, our boards in the next um, four to five months, and then with those secured funds from the profits to be able to go back um, down to Chile. Sorry, we've returned to the U.S. Um, for the summer months here to focus on sales of the product um, and. Um, distribution, and then we we plan to return to Chile to explain the program in late 2014. This is a life's work, isn't it? Just lastly, I don't know if you've calculated this, how many fishnets, how many metres of fishnet does it take to make one skateboard? Yeah, so fishnets kind of vary in in density. Um, Sometimes you find nets that that are kind of um, a little bit lighter and, and thinner, and then you certainly get some really thick, heavy um, uh, nets when you work with the nylon. But we've kind of looked at the, an average of, of those two kind of scenarios on the low end and the high end and, and found it's about 30 square meters that are going into each board, which roughly equates to a kilogram. Which is saving a hell of a lot of fish and marine life down there, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, our, our, our view is that, you know, if we can, if we can keep um, more of this waste out of, out of the ocean, and then it's just a start. Um, in addition, like you know, we we understand that our impact is limited in the beginning. But if we can get people onto this idea, then certainly we can expand our footprint. But more importantly, um, we think we can we can use the board as a tool to collaborate. Um, you know, with with larger with larger players that could have a greater influence and also, you know, by inspiring other people to look at it and say, okay, well, you know, what, what types of waste am I seeing or, or what type of products do I make um, that may util- that may need some of these materials and, and how can I do my part and, and utilize waste? And, and really we think that's kind of the change, you know, that's, that's where things are going and that's where they need to be going. The way that we've kind of been living um, based on just consuming raw products and, and thinking about what's next is not sustainable and kind of finding a way to close the loop um, is the way that we need to think going forward. 
Well, there you go. That was uh, David Stovone is talking about Boreo skateboards. I've just been looking at their website, incidentally, and each skateboard is made in the shape of a fish, understandably, uh, like a, a giant minnow with complete with fish scales. So check it out, boreoskateboards.com, and I have put the link up on our Facebook page so you can have a look at it there. That's the Enviro Show on SAFM. That's it for the show tonight. Thanks very much. I'll be back on Sunday with uh, books and more. So join me for that. And thanks very much to Garnet and Quinica, who's been keeping me company. And next up, it's time for Stephen Kirker with lots of music and news. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Nancy. Um, I'm going to look up those uh, skateboards. Not that I'm going to start skateboarding at my age, because uh, you've reached the age where it's quite fragile. But that sounds like fascinating stuff. Anyway, with you until midnight, as Nancy says, it's a couple of hours of uh, music. But first, it is news time.